So as the screen says, find the Gospel of John. We are beginning a series this morning uh, on John's Gospel. And just by way of introduction, by your, as you make your way there, and we'll look at the first five verses this morning. Uh, the Gospel of John is probably the last one written of the four in the New Testament. It's written by a close associate of Jesus, uh, the Apostle John. So, great source. That's very important. If, if you're going to write about somebody, it uh, needs to be a first-hander or somebody who's got access to a real first-hander, an insider, and John is every bit of that. But more, it does what you would expect one of the four Gospels to do, and that is it highlights the expectancy of God's promise in a person, the Christ, the Messiah, right? God has promised that one would come, and it points to Jesus and shows his credentials as that one. So that the one that they'd been waiting for generation after generation, for hundreds of years, with the promises, and they know these markers, somebody like John could point to Jesus and say, don't you see his credentials? He's the one uniquely and only who fulfills what God has promised. And of course then, this demands your response. If he is the one, and he is uniquely so, then respond to him, believe and obey and follow him. So my prayer is that as you encounter the book, you will encounter Jesus, okay? So let's read John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Help us in this hour, to understand it, to receive it as your people and submit to it and live it out, um, to, to uh, respond in ways that are appropriate when we hear from you. So help us to understand it and apply it uh, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me make a couple of introductory remarks about the opening of the Gospel of John. And the first is that there's a uniqueness to this particular gospel in that the first 18 verses, uh, there's a prologue is what most people refer to it as, um, where what John does is he, he writes this foreword, first 18 verses, and in that he previews what's to come. So there are themes that he introduces in those 18 verses where he's highlighting what will come later. So if you see it here, and it's a theme here, you're going to see it later. If you see it here, it's important, and it's going to be borne out later. Um, so there's another aspect to that in, that in this prologue, those first 18 verses. He gets down to business. He, he doesn't bury the lead or hide the ball or anything like that. He starts right away. He immediately asserts that Jesus is the answer to our trouble and that we're in trouble. And so you're going to find right away, as soon as John begins this gospel, as we make our way through the next few weeks, through the prologue, the first 18 verses, that he's going to assert Jesus 
as the answer to our troubles. So that's the first thing. Here's a prologue, and what John is doing is he's writing this account of Jesus, who he is, pointing to him as the one with the credentials to fulfill all those things about the, about the Christ. He is the Messiah. But as he does that, he's previewing how he's going to lay that out in the rest of the book. The second thing is when you read this passage, the word word keeps showing up. Verse 1, it shows up three times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word, Word, Word. What is that, or who is that, and why, why does he use this title? Well, it's, it's clearly, let's, first things first, right? It's clearly referring to Jesus. When he says the Word, he's talking about Jesus. Now, how do we know this? And just so you know... Nobody who is familiar with John disputes this. There's not somebody who, like, for example, is a skeptic who reads the Gospel of John, looks at that and says, well, that doesn't refer to Jesus. They have, everybody concedes this, but here's how you can see it. So, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of, uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then you read it from there, and it's really clear, Word equals Jesus. Okay? So nobody disputes that. But what they do kind of kick around a little bit is why use this particular title? You know, you want titles to be meaningful. You want them to be uh, something that, like, like that one word title would express something really significant about whoever it is you're referring to. And so some scholars can debate this. When John wrote this, did he have like a, a Greek focus or more of a Hebrew focus? And, you know, scholars can be really nuanced about stuff like this. But the Greek word, logos, is the word, it means something like this. It means uh, logic or reason. So is he saying about uh, Jesus that he's the logic or the rationale of God? Now, if you, if you read the Old Testament, the, the word of God really emphasizes the revelation of God. God's revealing himself and what he's going to do and all of that. Which one is it? Um, let me do my best to... I can sense the tension in the room, you know, is it Hebrew or a Greek focus here? That's really a distinction without a difference, right? Uh, it's a God, God is making himself known through Jesus. Jesus is the communication of God. He's the message of God. He's the mind of God. Uh, he's God come into our presence, right? And so he is God's complete way of showing himself and making himself known to us. There is no better version of God making himself known to us than Jesus. There is no later version. He is the full and final version. So, for example, if before, if you lived in their time and you had never read the Gospel of John, and all you had had access to was Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, right? And you think, all right, when I encounter this point, because it's very important for us to get what's going on here. If I think about what God means whenever it, uh, or what Scripture means whenever it says the Word of God, you know, dot, 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 or how am I to understand that? How is it used? Well, if you were familiar with the Old Testament Scripture then, you would recognize the Word of God is connected with God's powerful activity in these different things. One of those is creation. 
The Word of God shows God's powerful activity in creation. So you, you open the, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And it was so. God spoke and it was so. God's Word connected to the power, powerful activity that He had in creation. Second thing would be Revelation. A lot of times a prophet later on in, in the people of God's history, Israel's history, would say, the word of the Lord came to me. So they had a word from God that God was making himself known through this spokesman, this prophet, to let his people know what his mind was, what his thoughts were, what his plans were. And then a third one was deliverance. So um, God spoke, and through his speech, his people were saved. Psalm 107.20 He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So God's Word, the Word of God, connected to the powerful activity of God in creation, revelation, making Himself known, and salvation. So D.A. Carson put it this way, in short, God's Word in the Old Testament is His powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation, and the personification of that Word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of His own Son. Now, there's a lot there, but what he's saying is, we think about, if you read that Old Testament uh, and, and saw the Word of God being a theme, that's God making Himself known. If... if by analogy, think about this. If you say um, you don't connect your word from your person, right? So to refer to myself in the third person uh, like an elite athlete or something like that, I wouldn't say, for example, the word of Stacy is separate and distinct from Stacy. My word is an expression of my person, right? It, it comes from me expressing myself. It comes from me making myself known. So this is all connected. If the, if the Word of God is connected to God's powerful activity and creation and revelation and salvation, how should I understand God? Well, Jesus. Jesus is God's Word of Himself to us. So, for example, in Hebrews 1, uh, it says this, you know, in, in, in former times, the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last times, He has spoken to us through His Son. He's the exact representation of His glory. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. He's making Himself known in this full and final manifestation through His Son. How does God speak to us? Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you want to know the mind and character and who God is, you look to Jesus. In a in a more tangible way, uh, we see this in this encounter between Jesus and one of his disciples, Philip. You know, they're following him. You get to John 14, and Philip says, and a lot of hard things have gone on. And Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, says to him, Hey, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Seen me? Seeing the Father. Um, Jesus is God's full message of Himself to us. If you want to know God, you're going to do that through Jesus and only through Jesus. So, all right, now to the five verses. How do we see these, the, the beginning of the prologue? 
right? And it uses this familiar little echo of something, and there are two angles that you might think of. The, the question is something like this, well, who is Jesus? If the Word is Jesus, and Jesus is God's expression of Himself to us, um, how are we to understand this? How are we to understand who the Word is and who Jesus is? Well, a couple of angles on this. One, one angle is to probe into or to express Jesus' nature. And the other is his conduct, you know, who he is and what he's done. Who is he by nature and what has he done? So let's look at that first one, and that's the first couple of verses. Uh, let's read it again together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So there's a repetition there, right? There's a flow there. Well, one of the things you might say is, who is he? He is the in the beginning one. You don't have to be uh, Jewish or have a strong background in that to, to go, wait, in the beginning, that sounds like a familiar phrase, right? You break open the very first book of the Bible and you get in the beginning, what happened? God. In the beginning, God's already there and God created the heavens and the earth. God speaks and he makes it so. And so what John is doing here is he's in his gospel, he's hearkening back to the account of creation. Right? There's, God is there and God is created. And he's showing us that the gospel of Jesus is not in conflict with the Old Testament. Instead, it's connected to it. That Jesus is a continuation of that and a fulfillment of it. Right? In the beginning, God created. And what John does is he says, pay attention. Because I'm connecting those two things. And you're going to see who Jesus is in that. So the first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is that Jesus is preexistent. He was in the beginning, right? Was the Word. Um, time and space had not begun. It's hard for us to think about. To us, time is uh, an ever-present reality, right? The clock, you know, a lot of songs about this, uh, but the, the clock just keeps ticking. And there's a, it's almost like you're on this great conveyor belt, uh, in life, and whenever you're young, you know, you're on this conveyor belt, and, you know, your great-grandparents or whomever, they pass away, and you're like, oh, that's a kind of a sad thing, but it's distant, and then if the order of things follows, you know, then your, your grandparents pass away, and then, um, and that's super sad, and then you can lose a parent and a sibling, and you start to look around, and what, whatever that conveyor belt does it shows that you're closer to the end. And there's no lever, right? That time just keeps bringing you along. You know, it's not... Uh, sometimes you look in the mirror and you just you see these lines and you wonder where they came from. Or you see gray or you see an absence of hair where there used to be hair or the presence of hair where there shouldn't be hair, you know, right? It's like, and there's this, this time keeps going in such a way that you can't turn it back. For us, time and space, and we operate inside of space, it is impossible for you to operate outside of time and space. But what John says is before time and space happened, the Word was already there. In the beginning was the Word. Time and space hadn't come on the scene yet. This is a hint at the eternality of Jesus, which is something created beings like you and me we don't have. There's a guy named Mark Johnston who said it this way, The Word does not by nature belong to the sphere of time and space. 
The Word never had a beginning. He always was. Now, you have a beginning and I have a beginning, but not Him. He is preexistent. He was preexistent before time and space was the Word. Okay? Second thing. Who is He? He's God. In verse 1, at the very end of it, it said, right, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and don't miss this, the Word was God. Now, that's very blatant. It's hard to mistake. The Bible doesn't say that about anybody who isn't God. Like, hey, listen, between these three, God, 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 two of them are false, but pick the right one. The Bible never does that. Only God is God, and there is one God. So it's hard to mistake that whenever the Bible refers to this, we should set up and pay attention. For example, just out of our frame of reference, if you were to ever see a glorious angel, be the greatest being you'd ever seen, right? And, and we, there are a couple of accounts like this in Scripture. As great as they are in their glory, uh, even people who know God, they're almost compelled to worship. You know, disciples have done that. You know, people see the, the, the angel in his glory, and they, they just tend to want to do that. And what does the angel do? The angel says, nope. I'm a created being just like you. You worship God and only God. So those glorious angels, as great as they are, won't receive uh, worship. This isn't the only place, John 1 isn't, where Jesus is referred to as God. So, for example, in Romans 9, 5, refers to the Christ and described this way, who is God over all. Jesus is God. Now, after the resurrection, for example, Thomas encounters Jesus and he says to him, my Lord and my God. Uh, and at the end of Matthew, after Jesus' resurrection, his disciples gather around him and it says they worshipped him. Now, Jesus doesn't stop them like the angels do. As a matter of fact, he receives their worship. It's only appropriate for him to do that because who are you to worship? Worship God and only God, nothing less than God. Ten Commandments type stuff, right? And Jesus receives their worship. Either he's merely a man who shouldn't have done that, and you should reject him if that's the case, or he received his due. And he should be worshipped because he's God. And what John says about him right from the start, isn't that interesting? He doesn't wait to reveal that until some later time. Oh, by the way, he's God. He's letting us know early so that we can see the godness in Jesus as we go along. Ah, right. A marker of deity right there. Right? Third thing. A distinct person. Now, John is letting us know more about who God is here. He says in verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's, we know this from the Old Testament. It's very clear there's one God, but, is, but the Bible is clear about the unity of the Godhead. There is one God in more than one person. There is one God in three persons. The Father is God, but the Father is not the person of the Son. The Son is God, but not the person of the Father. It turns out that an infinite God is not reducible to, to the limitations of human understanding. Now listen, there are people who struggle with the concept of the Trinity. Not, I'm not going to do a big exposition on that right now. And I, I, I get it, right? But I, let me just tell you, I draw some comfort from that. And I draw some comfort from that more from the, the mystery of the Trinity than I would from something that's really reducible and simple. Uh, it would be a marker of failure to me, I think, 
And, you know, according to the way that I would see it, if God was so simple that he was easily understood, but given my limitations, and I've got limitations in my faculty, news alert, you might be super bright, but so do you. Okay? You can't understand everything about everything and the nuances of it and, and whatnot. If, if God himself is infinite, then you're not going to be able to reduce him into something that's completely concrete that you can understand. That actually comforts me. It, it's, a, it's a marker of consistency that the infinite, almighty God, as he makes himself known, we would look at that and we would say, there's some mystery there. Not because it's not true, but because there's only so much my brain can take. Just the gap between you and your, you know, your toddler, what they can understand and what you understand, as great as that gap is, there's certain things you don't explain to them because they can't get it, right? They just can't receive it. That gap is greater between you and God. Um, so he's a distinct person. So you see that it's, you know, it's, it's interesting where he points to who Jesus is in those first couple of verses, and you see, oh, preexistent, God, a distinct person. And then he transitions in verses 3 through 5, and we see what he did. His conduct is what he points to. Look at verse 3 with me. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's I had to practice that because otherwise I'd mess it up, right? That's hard to do. But he points to creation. What did Jesus do? Well, the, the Word of God connected to creation. So it's, it's still connected back to the beginning. But let's point, at this, let's point out this thing. The creation of everything is attributed to Jesus. And what is that? Who creates you don't create, I don't create, we might be creative, we might uh, take something and mold it, right? We might fashion, we might design, but we don't create something out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, is God conduct. Creation is something that God and only God does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, what's made that God didn't make? nothing what did God make everything and what he says about Jesus in verse 3 is what he did right and so you connect that and you say well doesn't that make sense in the beginning God created and God spoke and said let there be dot 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 and whatever it was that's what happened Jesus is the word of God it's said in that absolute way in the positive and in, and in the negative everything that was made he made and uh, you know, there, there's nothing made that he didn't make, right? This one who is entering the world is the one who created. By the way, here's another situation where it's not only in John that we find this. You could look at Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and you see markers of Jesus as creator. His godness is shining through. So you see creation attributed to him. Let's get to the next one, verses 4 and 5. Because this is a transition, but maybe not as much as you think. It says in verses 4 and 5 about Jesus, this word, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness is a problem. I remember when uh, it was my senior year in college. You know, that's the year you know everything, but you're a little jaded by what you know. And I had two roommates off campus because it wasn't cool to live on campus in, uh, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And we lived on the poor side of town in this triplex. 
um, and it, it didn't have the normal amenities that you might think a place you would live would have. So this triplex didn't have street lamp inside the parking area. And so we, we were one of three um, uh, units facing uh, another three. Of course, we had people on the backside of us, and so did they. But there was a common parking lot in between. Not very good lighting. And the funny thing about the way our little apartment was designed, you walk in and there was, no, there was no power switch. And so to get to light, you actually had to grope along. If it was nighttime, you would fumble around, open the key, uh, or open the key, open the door with your key, you know, fumbling around. And we didn't have phones that would shine a light or anything like that. So, you, you know, you had to do it just like uh, Daniel Boone did or somebody like that, Kit Carson. Um, make your way in and, you know, and then feel your way along the wall until you bumped into furniture, you know, grope to the lamp and go up there, didn't have the little touch lamps, find the knob and turn it on. It was kind of a funny, sometimes frustrating process. Um, and so you just groped in darkness. You don't see reality in darkness. It's not your vision. You, why do you need light? Because truth uh, can only be known by seeing it. If you're in darkness, you don't see. It's a common metaphor in Scripture, but we can, we can relate to that a little bit. I remember one time I came in, and like I said, maybe not the best side of town we lived in, and there was a mini riot out in the parking area. I mean, these guys were fighting, and I don't mean a couple of guys fighting with everybody around. It was a full-blown little, like, fists were swinging and all of that, and I probably wasn't smart. It was probably a bad choice on my part. I probably should have just turned around and gone somewhere else, but it was late at night. I'd, I'd been studying, I'm sure I'd been studying really hard. Uh, in case my mom is listening to this, I worked really hard, you know, I came in, and there's this riot and violence, and guys are swinging at each other and hitting each other and uh, using words my mom wouldn't approve of. I pulled in. We were the last unit in that parking area, pulled in, and um, one of my neighbor, Floyd, probably saved my life because some guy was about to jump me, and he said, no, he's, he's cool. I wasn't. Floyd lied on my behalf. So I fumble in, you know, and it wasn't that big a wasn't that big a deal because they did seem to be pretty interested in each other. But as I'm getting in, I, I unlock the door, I close it, I lock it, and I'm groping along the wall. And all of a sudden, Stacy, is that you? Right? And my roommate, Tim, was curled up really in the fetal position, scared to death, you know, asking if I had broken in. I said, no, I'm a... I'm a thief, and I decided to use the key when there's a riot outside. <laughs> he couldn't see me. I couldn't see him. It's just a normal way. In your life, you're either going to see the light, you're, you're going to use light, you need light to see reality and truth, or you're going to be connected to somebody who is, or you won't know it. Your only alternative is death and darkness, is groping in blindness. And when he describes Jesus, he describes him, and again, this is a theme that will show up later, light. Um, Jesus is the bringer. Do you want life and light? It's only in Jesus. It still harkens back to the beginning, remember? What's the first thing God did? God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke and said, let there be what? Light. 
And uh, in chapter 2, God breathed into the nostrils of the man and he became a living being. Light and life come from God and only from God. So Jesus is, what did he do? Creation. But what we find here is new creation. Uh, he's bringing light and life. Now, why do I say new creation? Well, if you, if you do a little exposition of verses 4 and 5, it's, you know, okay, uh, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. Jesus is this, he gives this, he overcomes any kind of force that would attempt to prevent this. This implies something about you and me. Uh, We're in darkness and death. And that's a problem because darkness doesn't generate light and death doesn't generate life. If you in your darkness are going to get light, you're going to have to get it from somebody who has it. If you in your death are going to get life, you're going to have to get it from somebody who has it. And so he uses this metaphor. Are you going to be able to see? Are you going to see reality? And that means see truth. What do dead and, and what do dark and dead people need? Light and life. Where are you going to get it? There's something exclusive about Jesus. So notice this in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, I get it. There are a lot of people who would say, well, why can't we just all get along? And I think we probably can try. I think we should try. But the idea that Jesus would come and do what he did, and then for us to say, well, what did Jesus do? He came from very God, right? He's the Son of God. And he identified with us and became one of us all to go to the cross and represent us and by burying our sins on the cross as the righteous one who is our substitute, overcame death by his resurrection. Oh, but by the way, there are other ways. If he is truth and that's what it took for you to be justified, how in the world could there be any other way? And if there are other ways, why in the world would he take that step? Why not just point to the other ways? The other ways, by the way, that the Bible refers to as empty. They're dead ends. Jesus will claim this exclusivity for himself later. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, in our, our culture, we, we have these sensitivities, right? It's the wrong way of seeing it. The idea of like, well, that seems pretty exclusive. Uh, how should you see it? Well, that the, the infinite God of the universe in his absolute holiness made a way for you. It was obviously difficult if it took the innocent son of God coming, identifying with you and dying for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, to invite you to himself. Maybe we shouldn't say only one way. Maybe we should praise God and say, thank you for the way. Um, sounds like new creation. Darkness and death, in other words, new creation is salvation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Light and life. In the beginning, God brings light and life. God speaks. The word comes, says, let there be light and life for people in darkness and death. Salvation is new creation. So let's ask this question as we wrap up. What's the point as you look at uh, the first five verses of John, where he's introducing uh, with this title, here is the word of God come. 
He was in the beginning. He is God. He is with God. He created everything. And there's a new creation, light and life for people like you and me in, dark, in darkness and death. You see this darkness and light. You see death and life. And what John is doing right here is he's saying, what do you do if you live in the, in the darkness? Well, when you see the light, you respond to it. If you're in darkness, once the light comes on, you adjust your eyes, you see the light, and you respond to it. The point here is, the one who enters the world here is the very one who made it. And he's the one who will save it. And John is going to say again and again and again, Jesus is going to say, believe in him. Believe in him. And why? Why should you believe in Jesus and not somebody else, somebody else noble, you might think? Well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He made everything, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the darkness couldn't overcome the light. Why believe in Him? Because who is like this? That's why. That's why. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, the good news that we can be saved through Jesus, that in humility he came and identified with us in our worst possible place where we couldn't help ourselves. And uh, as light and life answering our death and darkness, may we believe, may we believe to our joy and to your glory and shine that light for the world around us. Uh, not because we're better, but because... You're a holy God, and because there's light and life in Jesus, and he's worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.